Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I hope that you are doing well and have had a good day. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who listen to the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to be home this evening. Hope you enjoy uh, the program. Now, before we continue our discussion on ecclesiastical separation. We have a number of questions that have come in since last week. The first one is in reference to Elizabeth, which is fitting this time of year, the Christmas season. Pastor, in the Gospel of Luke, it said that Elizabeth hid her pregnancy for five months. Is there a specific reason why she did that? Well, look, the Bible doesn't tell us, uh, give us any specifics. We can only speculate and give you um, our best opinion on on what has taken place. But I think the best way to look at uh, Elizabeth is probably look at Luke chapter 1 and recognize that we're dealing with a couple, uh, she and her husband, uh, two very elderly people advanced in years. She'd been barren, never had a child. And um, so she thinks she's beyond the age of childbearing. But meanwhile, her husband has been praying uh, for a child. If you look at uh, Luke 1, verse 6 to 7, Nathan. Luke 1, 6 to 7 says, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren. And they both were now well stricken in years. So it's very clear that uh, not only was he an old man, she was an old woman as well. And um, clearly that she was barren. That means she didn't have any children. (coughs) If you look at um, verse 13, you'll see that it seems to indicate that um, Zechariah was praying still, even at this late stage in his life and her life, that he wanted a child. If you look at verse number 13, I think that comes up clearly. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias. For thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. So clearly, um, the fact that his prayer is being answered, um, it hints there uh, that clearly this man was praying, and he was hoping that in spite of his age and the age of his wife, that he would have a child. And then if you look at verse uh, 36... Verse 36 says, And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth... She hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Again, notice that the angel is telling Mary that her cousin Elizabeth um, is having a child. Again, notice the emphasis in her old age. She is beyond 
the age, normal age of having a child. So you can imagine a woman maybe in her 70s, probably in her 80s, suddenly discovers that she is is pregnant. Uh, Her husband is about her same age. Uh, How would that look in public that an 80-year-old woman is is pregnant? Um, You know, it it could be embarrassing uh, for a woman that age to still uh, be thinking of having a child. And the other thing is, could be out of modesty because she's been praying, he's been praying for such a long time, and she doesn't want to flaunt before the public the fact that finally God has um, given them a child. Some people do that, but it's very, very clear that these are two righteous individuals who've been serving the Lord uh, in the temple. And um, so, I would say to you that probably out of modesty, probably out of embarrassment. The other thing is. Um, you know, here you are, you think you're pregnant, you've never had this experience before, would you not want to wait until it is viable and is put beyond all doubt that this is really real? So we're told that in uh, verse number um, 24 and 25 that she waited and she kept herself in seclusion for five months. Can you read that? Yeah. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. Again, the reproach in Israel was a barren woman. Uh, Every person was expecting to produce the Messiah. So that is why it was looked down uh, very negatively when a person could not conceive. So she is now saying the Lord has removed removed that reproach. Uh, Here she's been married for so many years she can't get a child. And uh, as a result, maybe members, family, friends, neighbors were saying things negative. So now that reproach is taken away. But notice that she hid herself. The word hid means to remain in seclusion uh, for five months. So she believes she's pregnant, she's conceived, and again she's waiting uh, for several months before she finally lets other people know what has really taken place. And I think that is caution, that is modesty, that's uh, avoiding embarrassment. I think she wants to make sure that this is a viable uh, pregnancy. And the other uh, matter is that you'll find out later that she lived in the country. So depending on how isolated she was, uh, she might not have been able to, to publicly um, let other people know about her pregnancy. But this is all speculation. We, we don't know. We're not given a reason. But it seems to me uh, the aspect of viability, uh, the idea of embarrassment, and also the idea of modesty and uh, waiting to see to make sure this child is a viable child, I think that is probably what, what happened. But we can just speculate. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. Our next question says... Pastor, there are many instances of people with demon possession that Jesus healed. Nowadays, there are many people with schizophrenia. Might a lot of people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia be a demon-possessed? Well, I would like to uh, say this. The the Bible makes a clear distinction between demon possession and mental illness. I think we did a program on demon uh, demonism at some point in time. I think uh, Nathan could probably give you the reference to that. But we, we, we drew the distinction between an organic illness that caused a mental problem and uh, a person who is demon-possessed. When a person is demon-possessed, it means one or more spirits uh, inhabit the body of that person and uh, take complete control over that person so that uh, even the person um, will pretty much is controlled by by demons. Um, 
as a general rule, I would say this. One of the ways you can distinguish um, an organic mental illness like schizophrenia from demon possession is that if it can be controlled by medication, it is clearly not a matter of demonism because demons are not controlled by medication. So if the doctor can administer medication that is able to calm that person down and bring them back to a sense of normalcy, you can generally suspect uh, that this was not a, a case of uh, demonization, but this is more a case of uh, organic mental illness, etc. So I think that is one of the ways best you can know that. Now, because doctors and the medical profession generally um, abominate any idea of demon possession, I do feel there are people in the mental institutions that are demonized but are not recognized as being demonized. I think if you read a book by uh, Dr. Cox, um, Counseling the Occult, it's available in CLC. I've seen it in there. He spent 40 years in Europe dealing with uh, a lot of demonic cases. And one of the things that he has pointed out in that book is that his conversation with people who are the head of psychiatric hospitals, some of them who were Christians, they said uh, that several of those people who were in those hospitals were not mad. They were demon-possessed. But if you're in a government institution, they don't recognize that as the possibility because we live in a secular world where everything is, um, there's no belief in, in, in God, no belief in spirits, etc., etc. Everything is chemical or organic. So I do think that there are people in our mental institutions who are demon-possessed. The other thing I would say is the incidence of the increase in, in schizophrenia is directly linked to the incidence of the increase of the use of drugs. Um, even marijuana, for example, if you know anything about the effects of marijuana, one of the things that you'll discover is that uh, a lot of those people become schizophrenic. Uh, my whole theory, I don't can't prove it at this point in time, I am very convinced that people who use illegal drugs and go to what is called a higher consciousness experience, where they no longer can control their minds, they open the door to demonic powers. And I have no doubt that many of these people who are on drugs, heavy on drugs, have become demon-possessed because they've opened the door of their mind, they're no longer controlling their mind, and demonic powers begin to control them. So I do think it is really, really possible. However, let me just um, quickly point out to you that uh, you would know, uh, generally speaking, you know the person is demonized. There are several marks of a person being de- demonized. One is unusual strength. They have supernatural strength. Sometimes um, it takes five and six people just to hold down one person who uh, is demonized. A schizophrenia is not like that. Uh, secondly, generally speaking, there is more than one voice that speaks from within the, within the person. So it's, it's the, 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 you know when you're speaking to the person, they're normal, and then the demons sometimes speak in another voice. Uh, the other thing is that they normally have supernatural knowledge. They can say things and tell you things about yourself that there's no way they could have known that. Uh, so they have this, this, this clairvoyant ability. Um, I would also say there's a deep hatred mm-hmm. for prayer and the Bible and the things of Christ. And the name of Jesus. And the name of Jesus. And uh, some songs as well, when you sing about the blood and victory in Jesus, they respond and react that in a very violent way. They're very hostile to Scripture. And this is another thing, they can't pray. If you were to tell a person who is demonized to pray, you are mostly either going to fit or to begin to behave in a, a certain uh, certain type of way. So I would say that... Um, We've got to be very careful that we don't categorize organic mental illness with uh, demon possession. 
But the reality is there are several, some of these people who are possessed, drug addicts, and those people who are um, who um, have dilly-dallied in the occult or dilly-dally in black magic or witchcraft, etc., who has become mentally deranged. There's no question that these people are, uh, by transference, have become demonized. But we have to be very careful not labeling every schizophrenic as um, a demon-possessed person. Again, I think the key here is medication. What does the medication do to the individual? I think that is very, very helpful to differentiate between a person who's demon-possessed and a person who's organically mentally ill. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.44. Thank you to the individuals who have sent in their questions already. We will get to them in the order that they came in. And if you have a question, you can call and ask it live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. If you would like more discussion on the topic of demons and demonology, Pastor did a seven-part series on that back in 2020. You can go to, you can just go to Google and type in That's Truth Podcast. Choose your preferred podcast provider and then look for episode number 124. It's entitled Demonology. Then Episode 127 through 132 are Demonology Part 2 through Demonology Part 7. And those are full episodes discussing demons, demonology, and what the Bible says about that topic. Another question that has come in, this one from a listener in Dominica, Pastor Murphy Uh, This individual sent a video, and I know you've seen it, of Chinese Christians receiving Bibles for the first time. For those who are listening, uh, rather than play the audio, let me just describe the about one-minute video for you. It starts out, there's a number of individuals in a room. There are a couple of big boxes on the floor in the middle, and it says that they're Chinese Christians receiving Bibles for the first time. The large boxes of Bibles are opened up. The Christians rush forward to get their Bibles, and then many of them begin to cry and to kiss their Bible. And the video closes with the narrator encouraging us to make sure that we value our Bible. Pastor, the listener is asking you to comment on this video. I just think it was um, incredibly, not only amazing, but incredibly encouraging to see that there are people in different parts of the world who truly value the Bible. Um, the, the the elation that they displayed and the, the sense of overjoy and crying and grasping the Bible, kissing the Bible, rushing forward to get, make sure to get, get a, a scripture, uh, talks about the, the hunger and the longing within this human spirit for reality, spiritual reality. And I think that's a, a profound indication of the hunger and the thirst. You know, you can only suppress a people and the Word of God and God himself for a period of time, like China has done since the Boxer Revolution. But clearly, uh, within China, there is a, um, that part of the world, there's a longing for the true and the living God. And this is one of the clear indications. The other thing I would say, it really is a rebuke to us in the West. Yeah. 
who don't value uh, the Bible, who hardly read the Bible, and who perhaps just take up the Bible. We take it to church on Sunday morning, and then we put it back on Sunday. We take it to our home, and then we don't use it again until next Sunday when we go to church. Today, some people not even taking the church. They got the Bible on their cell phone. They got the Bible on their iPad, etc., etc. Uh, and I think that's a, a real uh, disgrace in, in that regard. The other thing is that in the West, uh, the Bible is becoming decreasingly unpopular. And the reason why it's becoming decreasingly unpopular, not because of anything about the Bible, is because the social agenda that the political elite and the leftists and the progressives are wanting to push upon people, like to normalize homosexuality and the transgender movement, and also to have this idea of um, same-sex marriage and to legalize abortion. All of these are abominable aberrations. These are huge, disgusting crimes against humanity. And uh, But the people in the West, especially the political elite, the leftists, the liberals, they want to foist this on the public. And as a result, you may find very well that in the future, there will be a temptation to ban the Bible as hate speech because it condemns these kind of practices, the homophobic, the transgender, and um, the same-sex marriage, all condemned. And also, of course, the Bible uh, makes it very clear that abortion is murder, premeditated murder. And uh, the West and the political elite in the West and the progressives and the liberals don't like that kind of a language, and therefore they'll do everything to discount the Bible. And I would not be surprised if attempts are made at some point uh, in the near future, to somehow get the Bible banned or get certain parts of the Bible uh, extracted because they're offensive to these different groups who people say are normal and the Bible is an ancient book um, that advocates uh, morals that are, um, quite frankly, out of of date. Uh, I think that's probably going going to happen. But it's a joy to see these Chinese people grabbing, kissing, elated, just... Uh, like they've got a pot of gold uh, to them. Uh, it, it was just encouraging to my heart to, to think that in the different part of the world, the Word of God is so treasured. But here in the West, it is so devalued and so um, uh, the appreciation for it has really diminished. And I think it continues to diminish. And I'm not too sure if there's any way we can bring it back to the point where people really treasure it and value it as it's supposed to be. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. Our next question, Pastor, what happens after death? Well, again, I would ask Nathan to go, go through the, the programs we've studied. We've, we've dealt with the matter of what happens after death in one of the programs already, and I hope he can, he can probably give you that even now or maybe afterwards. But the Bible makes it uh, fairly clear that uh, one or two things happen. If I'm a Christian... The Bible says, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And um, Paul said, I have a desire to depart and to be with the Lord, which is far better. But he has a present responsibility to remain. So Paul makes it quite clear that after Calvary, after the resurrection of Christ, uh, when a believer dies, we go directly to the Lord. We also know that because it also told us in Thessalonians that he will bring with him when he comes those who are with him. And, of course, that is the spirit which will be joined with the body which will be resurrected, and so shall we be like the Lord. So the believer uh, spirit goes to be with the Lord. Uh, his body, of course, sleeps in the grave. And there's coming a time when the, the Lord will bring back the, the spirits of the believers with him. The body will be resurrected, body and spirit reunited, and they will completely change and become like him. When it comes to the unbeliever, 
the only insight that we have into this matter is what our Lord gave us uh, in His teachings. And the the Old Testament does mention this as well, but not as but not as much clarity. But our Lord makes it quite clear in Luke chapter sixteen. If you want to call it a parable, it doesn't make any difference. A parable is designed to teach something. And what it teaches there clearly is that a person who dies without faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who doesn't belong to the Lord, he goes to a place called Hades or hell, where he is tormented day and night. And the Bible makes it quite clear that he appeals to uh, Lazarus, who is in Abraham's bosom, the place of comfort, uh, to send Lazarus to dip a tip of his finger in water just to cool his tongue. And uh, so it is very, very clear that for the wicked, when you die, you go to a place of great discomfort and great torment. For the believer, it's a place of bliss and comfort. And the description uses paradise, Abraham's bosom, all the same, basically. But the whole idea is that the believer knows comfort. The unbeliever knows only uh, torment and and pain. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at radiolighthouse.org. For this program, when we are live on Tuesday evenings, you can also join us on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. You can click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can even interact with us that way by commenting in the comment section under the live video feed, and your comments will get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner live on the air. If you're not on Facebook, you can interact with us by calling and asking your question live on the air. To do that, call one 268 462-7420. The phone line is open and available, 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text, send your question to 268-782-1454. Another question that has come in, who are the <laughs> black Hebrew Israelites? I did some fairly good investigation on this matter. Uh, they're not only called, they're also called, aka they're also called Hebrew Israelites, they're called Black Hebrews, they're called Black Israelites, they're called African Hebrew Israelites. Um, basically, there's a group of African Americans who falsely claim that they are the true descendants of the Israelis, and they're the only ones who are the true Jews. Um, it's not a homogenous group, to be very honest. The movement is made up of, of, of racist, radical black um, leaders, and it also has some who are more pa- more passive and, and not as, as um, hateful, ha- hateful and, and, and radical as others. Um, they also have subgroups within this group who believe that the Native Americans and the Latin American people are the descendants of the Israelis as well. Um, so that is basically um, a kind of a summary of, of what uh, these people are. In terms of how they, um, they got started, the origin of the movement, the Black Hebrew Israelite movement originated in the end of the 19th century uh, when uh, one guy called Frank Cherry and William Saunders Crowdy both claimed to receive visions that the African-American were the descendant of the Hebrews of the Bible. Um, Frank Cherry founded the Church of the Living God, the Pillar Ground of Truth of the Nations in 1886, and then William Crowley founded the Church of God and Saints in 1896. 
Uh, other black uh, Hebrew groups started in the 19th century and the 20th century. Uh, by 1980, the number of these um, black Hebrew Israelites, uh, uh, black Americans, numbered about 25,000 to 40,000 in total. Um, in December of 2019, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a civil rights, black civil rights um, substantially law group that defends civil rights, labeled 144 black Hebrew organizations as black separatist hate groups because they were anti-Semitic and anti-white in their beliefs. So um, that is basically how it got started. But there are several groups that, um, so I just want to mention three of those groups. And one of them in particular is the one started by uh, Ben Ami Ben Israel, and that's the one you find in Israel today. Um, ben Ami Ben Israel was born in 1939. Th- he was born in Chicago, Illinois. His original name was Ben Carter. He was raised in a Baptist family, dropped out of high school, and then turned and served in the U.S. Army for three years. Uh, when he was within the Army at the time, after he dropped out of high school and joined the Army, he earned his GED within the Army itself. After he was discharged from the Army, he worked in as a um, metallurgist in the Chicago Howard uh, Foundry. In 1961, a co-worker of his introduced him to the idea that blacks are the descendants of the biblical Israelites. He started attending these meetings of black Israelite groups and was given a Hebrew name, Ben Ami Ben Israel. In 1966, uh, he said that he received a vision from the angel Gabriel who told him to lead American, African Americans um, to Israel to establish the long-awaited kingdom of God. Uh, in 1967, uh, he took uh, 350 of the American followers and went to Liberia to see if he can establish a, a colony there uh, in Liberia. Um, in Liberia, he claimed that he was the original, that he and these blacks that he brought over within, and the Liberian people who were there. Remember, that Liberia is a a state created by America in Africa for the blacks when slavery ended, so that if they wanted to go back to Africa, America created that state, Liberia, so that the Africans could return to Africa. And some of them did go to Africa, so of course he went there to see if he can can, can do that. Um, so he's claiming that these are the original um, Hebrews. Um, the other thing uh, about him <clears throat> is that in 1971, uh, he told the Baltimore Sun that two million blacks from the U.S. would um, would take over Israel and drive the Israelis' inhabitants out, and the Lord had ordered him to personally possess the land of Israel. And he died in, 19, in 2014 at 75, and he died. Um, he had four wives, 25 children, 45 grandchildren, and 15 great-grandchildren. Um, within the group, you can't have contraceptives, and most of them have more than one wives. Okay? Um, this. Let me just tell you how he got to Africa, how he got to Israel. Um, when he went to um, uh, Liberia in 1967, uh, he decided that he, this was the time for him to transition from Liberia into into Israel. And so uh, 
He took 30 members with him and went to Israel in 1969. Over the next 20 years, nearly uh, 600 joined him uh, as, at, as in Israel. In 2006, uh, about 2,500 of them now live in a place called Demona um, and two other towns in the Negev part of uh, Israel. The... <clears throat> The, when he was there in Israel, he's trying to claim that they were Israelis, and therefore, you know, Israel has a, a, a law called the Jewish Law of Return. If you can prove that you are Jew, you can get citizenship automatically. Well, when he attempted to become Israelis, the Israeli government um, uh, asked him for proof that they were Jews, and there's no proof. So the Israeli government refused uh, that them to be able to work in Israel and stay in Israel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they renounced their citizenship of America. Some went back to America, but then they, uh, they renounced their citizenship of America so that uh, Israeli government would be forced to let them stay for a while. The government of Israel allowed them to stay, and um, but they could not become citizens. Um, and then the group charged the the government of racial discrimination. And it was a very public thing that the Israelis didn't want them to become citizens because they were black, uh, Hebrews, etc., etc. In 1981, a group from the American Civil Rights um, Activist Group, a guy by the name of Bayard Rustin, a black American civil rights lawyer, went to Israel to find out if, in fact, it was a matter of racism. He discovered it was not anything to do with racism. These people had no connection with the Jews. They're not Jews. They're just claiming to be. In other words, it is it's stealing the culture of the of the of the of the Jews. It's claiming uh, their history. As a matter of fact, one of the great problems with this movement is that they are saying since they're the true Hebrews, the Jews have stolen their identity. So in black nations and in certain parts of black America, the Jews are being persecuted because they've stolen their identity. And this is one of the things that has been very, very um, hurtful to the movement. However, in 1990, the Illinois legislation um, sent a delegation to Israel to see if they can solve this, this problem with these, these people claiming to be black Hebrews and to change the legal status. Um, as a result of that, the Israeli government permitted them to stay, but they could not become citizens. Uh, they were given permanent residence. Um, and then um, what they did after that, they, some of them reclaimed the residency of America because they had to renounce the American citizen, now they reclaim it, etc., etc. Agreement was um, reached with Israel in 2003. Um, that the whole arrangement with them was revived and they were given this permanent residency in Israel. And then in 2009, um, Eliana King Ben Israeli became the first black Hebrew to gain citizenship in Israel, not because she's a, uh, a Jew, but because she was resident there long enough and she was granted citizenship uh, uh, there. So that is substantially the the history of what you find um, uh, in there. As far as their customs are concerned, they observe the Jewish Yom Kippur, the Passover, the Sabbath. They are vegans. They only eat um, um, they only eat vegetables. Um, they practice polygamy. Um, 
the, so so that is the ones in Israel that is there. But there are other groups as well that were started, uh, which I perhaps should, should mention. That's why I said there's not a homogenous group. There's several different groups. But this particular one that you find in Israel uh, are actually black Americans who are claiming that they are Hebrews. But there's no, there's no cultural connection. There's no racial connection. There's no ethnic connection. There's no historical connection whatsoever. It's just that they're saying that they had this vision that they were told that the black people were the Jews, etc. Of course, anyone that knows the Bible and, and uh, reads the Bible would understand that this is just a bogus claim that is being made. There's no connection between uh, the black uh, black uh, Americans and, and the Jews. The Jews are Jewish people, have always been Jewish people, have always had a culture. But um, I think the black Americans have a, an identity problem. I really believe they have an identity problem. And because they have seen the parallel between their sufferings and the Israeli suffering, for example, they use terms like diaspora. Diaspora is a term related to the Jews being sent out and being driven into the um, by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. That is no um, culturally taken on to this black group as well. They also see the uh, the Atlantic slave trade as the... Um, the scattering of these as these as Jews. Of course, the Jews were scattered in 70 AD. The Atlantic took place in 1492, 1993, etc., etc., that period of time. So it, it's really, a, um, it is actually a bogus claim. There's no there's no reality to it. Uh, and I can't, I can't figure out, other than the fact that they have an identity crisis, and they're trying to see a parallel between their sufferings and the sufferings as visual, and so they've stolen their, their culture, etc. That's what's happening. There's a black um, Zimbabwean writer who has made a, a written on this matter and said that what they've done, the damage they've done, basically, is that they've created in the black countries and also in black Ameri- parts of black America a hatred for the Jews mm. because of, of this. And he said that's, that's the worst thing they've done. They've caused uh, blacks to hate uh, Jews because they're claiming that they're the true Jews and the Jews are claiming that they're Jews. So there's no connection, real connection, between these people and the Jews. But that's what happened with them. There's I, a found, vi- huh? I found it very interesting. You listed the dates that it started. It was right around the same time that the Jehovah's Witness. In the 18th, yeah. yeah. I saw that as well. It's something, as I said before, I think someone needs to really go to that period and see what happened in the in, in that particular period. But while it started in the 18th, uh, um, the 19th century, late 19th century, it became very popular during the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. And that's where it began to really branch out. Uh, in that, because it became a very powerful movement. Yes, we have, Pastor. We have Codrington on the air. Codrington, thank you for calling, and go ahead very quickly with your question, please. Okay, I don't really know. I want to know what the minister means and what um, the minister means by when Jesus Christ was tempted by the devil and when he finished all his temptation. Thank you for those questions, Codrington. Pastor, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I'm not too sure if you want does he want to know what a current minister is today and what it means that the angel ministered? Is that what he's saying? A minister today is a person who is called by God into the ministry to serve his church. 
uh, that would be like a pastor, um, etc. All believers are, are priests. The Bible makes that very clear. So we don't have a select group of priests like they would have in the Catholic Church and within the Anglican Church. All believers are priests before God. But we're told that we have pastors, evangelists, and teachers. These are the three main um, personnel that God has given to the church in this current dispensation for the building up of the church, the edifying of the church, etc., etc. So serving uh, within the church or ministering within the church had to do with such things as administering the communion, the baptism. Most of it has to do with the idea of uh, preaching the word and um, caring for the flock. Uh, Etc. And you know, um, but that's basically what it is: ministering to to God's people through the Word, to prayer, to care, to visiting. All of that is involved. In when it comes now to the angel ministering to Christ after he was tempted, that meant that they strengthened him. In, in, in part, remember that Christ, uh, though he was both God and man at the same time, he never exercised his divinity to help himself. Every time in the New Testament he exercises divinity, it's always when he's trying to help somebody. But he came to live as a man like you and I, dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And going through 40 days and 40 nights without uh, eating would have drained him physically. And that is where the angels of God now came to minister to him, to strengthen him for the task ahead of him, knowing that this was just the beginning of the battle, because Satan just left him for a while. He didn't leave him uh, indefinitely. So the angels ministered strength and power to him to enable him to continue his ministry. That's what it means. I don't know if that helps. In terms of the birth of Christ, nobody knows uh, the exact birth of Christ uh, when it was December or or whatever it was. Nobody knows. It's just a date that the the church came up with, and it's become a, a normal day that people recognize as a day to remember our Lord's incarnation when he came. But there's no, there's no uh, definitive proof in terms of the date. What we do know is that the Catholic Church, uh, because when Christianity became the religion of the Roman Empire, uh, I think it was in 323 or 3, 313 or 314 uh, AD, that one of the things that the Catholic Church did, which I think has been a great um, detriment to the church over the years is, is that because of all of these pagans coming into the church to encourage these pagans to come into the church they looked at what ceremonies they had and what feasts they had etc etc and they brought in similar things in the church so that the pagans basically uh, would feel at home in the church and that's where you get things like Easter you get Christmas from etc etc but um, there's no nobody knows a specific year or day that Christ was born. But again, um, it is a day when the church recognized the incarnation of Christ, that he came to take on human form, to die for human sin. And um, I have no problem uh, with it. Uh, I know people say, well, it's pagan, therefore we, we should not uh, have a day to do that. But here's what my, my, my contention. I do not know about Antigua. I can only speak about what happens in Barbados. There are two times that most people go to church in Barbados. That is Easter and Christmas. It's an ideal opportunity to declare the glad tidings of the gospel to those people. And I see nothing wrong in having a service uh, to minister to those people the word of God. Remember, we just don't serve God on Monday. 
we serve God every day. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> every day belongs to Him, and uh, so if we want to <laughs> on December twenty fifth to recognize the fact that He came and He died, He, he came and He uh, came to as, as a man in order to fulfill the role of the Redeemer. Uh, I see nothing wrong whatsoever in us uh, celebrating that and observing that. I'm against the commercialization of it. I'm against the materialism of it. But again, I don't have any problem in people giving gifts. God gave his best gift to us when our Lord came in his incarnation. So there's nothing wrong in us blessing people with gifts as a reminder of the great gift that God uh, gave us when he gave his son. That is my um, personal uh, opinion on the matter. And I think I'm on good ground in, in regards to that. I hope it is helpful to you. I don't know if it is, but I hope it is helpful to you. What about to the fact of um, what age Jesus would be, whether his birthday's in March or whatever month or day, not that he had our calendar? How old would Jesus be? How would you answer that? Well, we know, for example, that he died about thir- uh, about 33 uh, AD, we know that, and we know that his birth is normally. It's not a, a question of. Uh, it depends on the calendar. Uh, once a time, you said it was one BC. Now most people agree when you make the adjustments to the calendar, it's about uh, really about three or four BC, right? To put it incorrectly, so we do know that that's the precise time. That it, the other thing is Daniel chapter nine uh, sets a time frame for when the Messiah would come, when the Messiah would die. So you could actually use Daniel's dating to know exactly, perhaps, when the Messiah would come. We know he would die when he's 33. We know that. So you can work back from that particular date in Daniel to have an idea of approximately when he would would have been born. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Codrington, thank you for your call. Thank you for your question. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.13. If you have a question, the phone line is now open and available. You can call 268-462-7420, or you can WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. A question that has come in. Did you have anything else you want to mention yeah, about the black? Two other, two yeah, other, two other of these black um, Hebrew Israelites claims that are made that I think that uh, they mentioned two other groups. One is called the Church of God and the Saints of Christ. Uh, it was established in Lawrence, Kansas in 1896 by an African-American called William Saunders Crowdy. Uh, in 1899, he established headquarters in Philadelphia, and then he relocated in uh, 1903 to Washington, D.C. He died in nine, 1908. When he died, the leadership went, went to William Henry Plummer. Plummer moved the organization to its permanent location in, in, in Belleville, Virginia, in 1921. Uh, Howard Zebulon Plummer succeeded his father as the head of the organization in 1931. His son, Levi Summon Plummer, became the church leader in 1975. And then Rabbi uh, Jehu A. Crowdy, Jr., a great-grandson uh, of William Saunders Crowdy, led the church from 2001 to 2016 when he died. Since 2016, it's now been led by a guy called Philip C., uh, E. McNeil. As of 200 and, uh, 2005, there are about f- 50 of these congregations in the U.S. and a dozen or more in Africa. 
the basic teachings of this group is it, they believe that they're the oldest African American um, Hebrew group in the U.S. and they hold to the tenets of Judaism. They teach that the Jews were originally black and that African Americans are descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. Jesus uh, was neither God nor the Son of God, but rather an adher- adherent to Judaism and a prophet. Uh, William uh, Saunders Crowley, who founded it, is considered to be a prophet. They observe the Jewish calendar, they celebrate the Passover, they practice circumcision, they observe the Sabbath, they wear this little cap like the Jew, basically, and they also practice baptism by immersion and foot washing. But basically the same basic doctrine that uh, there are the um, descendants of the Jews that were scattered um, in, 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 in the Bible. What would be your, if you were met one of these individuals in the grocery store and you started witnessing to them and then they turned around and started to argue their perspective with you, how would you address that? It's very difficult. To, it's like when you're talking, the, the same belief they have, the same belief the Rastafarians have as well. They also believe that the black people are the Jews. They also believe that Haley Selassie I is the Messiah. It's very difficult to deal with that kind of ideology. The problem is that social media has allowed this thing to be spread and without any kind of verification. So it's very, very hard without uh, historical data. I don't think any of these have ever read any books um, on the history of the Jews and the location of the Jews, etc. So I have several books uh, written by historians that give you exactly where the Jews were located and, uh, and stuff like that. The other thing is that they're not even aware, I don't think, that some of the pictorial diagrams of when Israel was carried into bondage in uh, Assyria and, and, and Babylon, the pictures of the Jews, they're not black. Hmm. They, they don't look black, they're not black, and they, they don't have features of black either. So there are, there are pictorial diagrams that will show what a Jew looked like when they were carried into bondage. All of this is completely ignored because of the narrative, right? <coughs> and and the, the, the problem is that I feel that... Um, I, 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 this is how I feel, Nathan. I may be wrong about this, but I feel that the same way they think that the white man has a God, a white God, Jesus, and that's unfortunate because, yeah. and the Hindus got their own God. I think they want a black God as well, and I think that it is driven by that narrative and with black nationalism, uh, which is the folk. I think that's the, the real problem with this kind of a group, but it's completely ignoring history. There's no factual uh, thing. There's no genetic connection whatsoever. And I, I think it is very, very hard to uh, to talk to people like this unless they're prepared to look at real history and not propaganda, basically. And that means looking at books that are not favorable only to their view, but looking at other views, et cetera, et cetera. And real historians, not their own historians who have no real historical background, et cetera. And then I think if they understand the ethos, the mindset of uh, feel that they've been robbed of their heritage and now they want to reclaim their heritage. You know, think about this, Nathan. What if the Jews had operated that way when they were in Egypt for 400 years in slavery? They came out of that, and Netanyahu said that when they re- regained the land in 1948, they said, we will never consider ourselves victims. We will create our own state. We will, in other words, we're not going back to this negativity, what had happened before. We move forward with our identity, right? I think that's what needs to be done. But I think it's in favor of black nationalists to keep this narrative going 
that they have been deprived and that people owe them something. That's the history of the world has been man conquering man and man not conquering man. That's the whole history of the world. Okay? And I think they need to get over that hurdle and understand that they, their identity is not only in their blackness, their identity has to be in, in Christ. Like my identity is in Christ. Whether, no matter what pigmentation they happen to be. I think if we can get our identity settled in Christ and, and, and Christ alone, we don't have to worry about pink, blue, black, or whatever. We see ourselves as believers, and we don't see ourselves as black, blue, green, or whatever. That's the identity that I think is needed, and I am not too sure that the black church in America can accomplish that, because the black church in America has become completely politicized. Right? I was talking to somebody th- this week, and uh, basically uh, the they were telling me that they hope that Trump gets um, impeached or whatever it is that they're going to do with him, etc. And they, we, got, we didn't get into an argument. But I said the evangelicals have no alternative in America. They said, but the evangelicals voted for Trump. I said, yes, but they didn't vote for Trump because of the character of the man. They voted for his policy. Because all the other policies, abortion, same-sex marriage, is pushed by the other political parties. So you don't give, you don't give the evangelical an option, basically. If I was a, in America, I couldn't vote for the Democratic Party. Could never do that. I could not support late-term abor- abortion, any kind. Yeah. Same-sex marriage, um, transgenderism, all this kind of moral decline I couldn't vote for that so I explained that you know it's, it's not the man they're voting for it's the policy <laughs> you realize that under Obama we almost lost Christmas I don't know if you realize that we were losing mm-hmm. the idea we couldn't even say Merry Christmas we were losing the idea we couldn't, they couldn't even put Christmas scenes in, in public places etc a lot of that was reverse okay so I think that that's the problem um, that until in my judgment uh, they find their identity in Christ and identity in the the heritage, the black heritage, uh, and move on there with their life. I just think that uh, the idea that people owe you something and so on and so forth, you can't go forward that way. You have to go forward with a positive idea, you know. Okay, sure, we went into slavery, but every nation has gone into slavery before. All the Europeans had slavery before. Uh, even in Africa, before the white man had, there was slavery in Africa. The Arabs had the Africans enslaved before the, before the Europeans as well. Oh, that, that's history. But they got beyond that. And I think that was need to be done. But I find in America that to keep the narrative going, it's to gain sympathy. And I think as well, um, I just think that it, it's, the, it's uh, separatist. Uh, and it's full, full of a lot of hate too because I'm going to give you the other one one of the other ones called the Nation of Yahweh which is another black group as well uh, what they believe uh, this is part of the same black Hebrew um, movement but again it's not a homogenous group um, it's a uh, heterogeneous kind of group who have different beliefs you said the name of that one is Nation of Yahweh yeah this one is Nation of Yahweh let me just tell you a little bit about this one and uh they have established a church of love. <laughs> um, it was started in the late 1970s. Um, formerly, um, this guy, uh, Yahweh Ben Israel, that's the name who started this group. But his real name was Hutton Mitchell Jr. Uh, again, that's his, he's a black American. Uh, he believed and thought that the black are the true Jews. And it was his calling to lead blacks out of the oppression of America and elsewhere to the promised land, meaning Israel. All of his followers were expected to relinquish their slave names and take on Hebrew names. So most of them got names that end in Israel. 
That's why he's called himself Yahweh Ben Israel himself. Uh, he built the Temple of Love in Miami, Florida, and then the members were required uh, to work full time and to give their possessions and money to the temple. And then they started businesses in the temple. They started a bakery, a printing shop, a grocery store, a beauty salon. Then in 1982, 1980s, everything changed. Mitchell announced to the group that he was the son of God. Wow. Uh, members were required to wear robes and turbans and renounce uh, their biological families. Members also started moving to the temple to live in the temple. And he instituted great uh, solid security. As a matter of fact, he appointed a circle of temple guards who were posted around the temple and any intruders were threatened with death. He also appointed a woman by the name of uh, Linda Gaines, a female member, as his personal aide and she was the one that began to control the financial affairs of the temple. In 1985, um, several more of these temples were established in other cities in America. And then... Uh, He's an extremist. Uh, he believes in total loyalty, uh, and uh, members are demanded complete uh, obedience to him. Dissenters uh, who go against his doctrine and his laws are ridiculed, and they are beaten. Uh, his power and influence um, throughout the 1980 decades uh, became so vicious that one of the things that the emotional Tarezi was always talking about is the uh, vicious racism he had towards whites, that he, they had to be killed. Uh, his mission in the 1980s became to lead black people, not only to Israel, but to chase all white people from the face of the earth by killing them. Um, as a matter of fact, um, one of the things that you had to do to become a member is to kill a right person and prove that you kill a right person in America. Uh, those that kill whites were now called deaf angels. And that's the name that he gave them. Uh, in 1990, Mitchell and 16 of his followers were arrested in Miami and charged for racketeering. And in 1996, Mitchell and several of the members' groups were convicted of 18 charges of racketeering, including murders, attempted murders. He was sentenced to 18 years in prison. In 2001... He was released because of liberal uh, regulations in that country, that, that part of the world, uh, set him free. But here's it. Two weeks before he was set free in 2001, he was confined to, uh, solitary confinement because they considered him to be a terrorist. But yet they released him afterwards. So he was released, and then uh, his daughter, after his release, uh, her name is um, uh, Vanita Mitchell. She issued a new statement saying that the members of the group no longer hate whites, but all human beings are children of God. As far as their beliefs are concerned, Yahweh, uh, Ben Yahweh, is the son of God. He's referred to as the Grand Master of the Celestial Lodge. He's also called the Architect of the Universe. Uh, he's called the Blessed and Only Potentate. Uh, and he believes that the not only are the Israelis black, but God is a black God as well. Uh, and he also believed that Jesus was a black Jesus. So, the they considered the crucifixion his arrest and the mistreatment of him in prison. So they labeled that as the crucifixion. Uh, I don't know what has happened after now his daughter. I don't have any further history about that. But that gives you an idea of, of the, how these French groups are. And again, it's not a homogenous group. Um, this is a this is a hate group. There's no question. And remember, I told you that the 
Southern Poverty uh, Law Group have labeled 114 of these groups as um, racist and separatist and hate groups. Uh, so it's not just and and the person who uh, who's labeled in that, by the way, is a, is a black lawyer. It's not it's not a a white lawyer from this particular group. So it's very clear that this is um, a racist group and a, and, a, and a hate group. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth, and we are answering questions that have come in, or I should say, Pastor Murphy is answering questions that have come in from listeners. We spent a fair bit of time here answering the question of. Who are the black Hebrew Israelites? Maybe you have been sent a video on WhatsApp or seen one on Facebook or on social media of them explaining who they are and how they're really uh, the true Jews and uh, manipulating scripture verses and all. Pastor, how do we, in today's day and age, make sure that we're following the truth and not just going down some rabbit trail of following some personality saying the truth, what they say is true. I will tell you what I'm becoming increasingly convinced about is that the real battle is about the Bible. And I really think that uh, the time has come for um, a, 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 a more thorough study of what we call um, bibliog- bibliography. That is the reasons why we believe the Bible. Uh, dating the Bible, etc. I think that that needs to be put in the hand of the average person because social media has become uh, a, a propaganda uh, tool that is being used, and a lot of the information and data that you find there is totally bogus and totally false. It's just like uh, people who in the today would argue, for example, that Moses couldn't write the Bible, couldn't write the thing. And, and that, those arguments are arguments based in the 19th century of these liberals who did not have the data. But now that the data is very clear that people could write hundreds of years before Moses, there's no retraction of it. So people who are not current with the information and still would have read that data, say, when they were in college, are still operating on false data that has been disproved centuries ago. I think that's the problem we're having today. And, of course, the fact that people can easily say that the Bible is a white man's Bible uh, and the association of Christianity with Europe. I think that uh, in, in, in black countries uh, especially, I find that that is being exploited uh, by these different groups and, and people who are not objective and who are just sort of inclined making judgments purely on the basis of color. I think that's a huge, huge problem. I think black Christians in particular need to write some good books on these matters to, 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 because if it comes from a white person or European, there's a prejudice against that already. But coming from a black person who has good, solid scholarship uh, information and could present that, I think it'd be more acceptable because it's becoming, the world is becoming increasingly polarized yeah. uh, along, along racial lines. And I think that um, uh, black Christians in particular have a, a, a great job to do in terms of defending the scripture because I think their voice in the black community uh, wants to be heard and needs to be heard. I think that's one of the things that needs to be done. It seems like in today's day and age, and you probably agree with me, 
truth is becoming more and more what I feel or what you feel, and it's not a standard. Here's one for you, Pastor. Uh-huh. Dutch positivity trainer, Emil Rattleband, aged 69, has gone to court seeking to change his age to 49 so to boost his dating and employment prospects. He says, we live in a time... When you can change your name and you can change your gender, why can't I change my age? Rattleband argues that he feels discriminated against because of his age, and his actual age has also lowered his employability. When I'm 69, I'm limited, but if I'm 49, I can buy a new house, drive a different car, and I can take up more work, he said, according to the BBC. Yeah, look, when, when, there's, there's no, when we live in an age of relativism, Everything is uh, subjective. What I want, what I choose. There's no objective truth. There's no transcendent truth. You've opened the door to any. I was thinking, uh, Nathan, this might sound kind of crude, but I was thinking recently that what stops a man? Okay, a man said, "My, I am born this way. I am born like in men." Okay. The 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 the, the, uh, <laughs> the sociologist before said that he had a mental problem. 1973, they use um, violence to get the psychological to change that. Okay, yeah. a man say, you know, I'm transgender or I'm, I'm this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How are you going to argue with that? Then I ask myself the question: Well, if you're accepting the fact that a man says I I was born inclined towards liking um, men, what if a man tell I was born inclined liking animals? What, what are you going to do with that? Hmm. You can't. Oh, oh, guys, I, I born like in children, boys. Yeah. What are you going to do with that? The whole argument is stupid. And once you have opened this Pandora's box and you open this door, you can't close it. You are now open yourself where you can't say anything is right or wrong because I am born this way. How can you tell me I wasn't born this way when I tell I was born this way? The stupidity of that is so obvious. That's why people, a man is a man, a woman is a woman. A woman is not a man, a man. But when you reach the stage now when you're saying a man, a, a Supreme Court judge doesn't know what a woman is. How in the world does a woman like that get on the Supreme Court? It's totally nonsense. right? But again, that's when you move away from truth and you move away from biblical standards. You open that door where anything goes and it's very difficult now to stop uh, what's coming down our, down our way. That's why I say to you, I am very, very sure that they're either going to ban the Bible or ban certain parts of the Bible. In Canada today, I cannot go in the public and preach against homosexuals. I will be charged, and if I don't pay the charge, I'll go to jail. So I can't preach from Romans chapter 1 in public. See, that's in Canada. right? Wait to see what's going to happen in the future when the transgender want this ban and that ban, and the, and the homosexual want that ban and the other ban. Where are you going to draw the lane? It's, it's very difficult to pull this thing hold back. So we're headed to a point of total moral confusion and chaos. We have a question that has come in from Trinidad. Good evening. When, do, when we die, do we automatically go straight to heaven or hell? What is the journey like to those destinations? And are we going to see the saints or will we be separated from them? Those are questions that, again, uh, the Bible doesn't give you details along that line. I would just say this. If you look at the Mount of Transfiguration, where Moses and Elijah, who had been dead for centuries, was able to communicate with Christ concerning his death, 
it seems very clear that there is some level of conscious communication after death. That seems to be very, very obvious to me, right? Now, what level that is, I don't know. Uh, But when a person, for example, uh, how could Moses and Elijah be dead for almost 2,000 years and still they reappear with Christ and they're discussing issues concerning his death? Uh, there must be some kind of consciousness uh, going on. There's some kind of communication going on. So we, we're not given all the details about whether or not we'll see we go directly to heaven. We, but we know one thing, that what is described in the book of Revelation as heaven, we're not going to enjoy that until after the tribulation and the millennium and then the eternal state. We, we don't know that. But in, in terms of what uh, going on after we know that absent from the body is present with the Lord, what does that mean? What level of uh, communication is there? What level of friendship is there? What level of knowledge? We don't know. But the, the, the comforting thing is that we are with him. Uh, and that, that, that should comfort us enough. In terms of the transition, when we are leaving this life and going off, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, we don't know. We know that in the case of Lazarus and the others that the angels transported him to paradise. Uh, we have the same form of transport. We don't know. We just don't want to get into the realm of speculation. God has given us enough, uh, and He has hidden certain things from us, and there might be some very good reasons why He has done that. So we just got to... Um, remember this as well. We're supposed to live by faith. If we knew every detail, hmm. where does faith come in? True. So the element of faith must be maintained in our relationship with God, and that is a relation of trust. So that's why a lot of the details are not given to us, but we've given sufficient to comfort us that the moment we leave this life, we go to be with the Lord and we're in a place of comfort and safety. Okay? I think that's what we need to, that's the kind of assurance we need as believers. The other details, uh, we wait for the future for that to be unfolded to us. A (laughs) WhatsApp comment that has come in. Pastor Murphy, what's your comment on people who are reading the Bible and not going by the Bible? because they know full well what the Bible says and are still living willfully in sin, getting up the next day, reading the Bible, and telling people about the Word of God, and they aren't doing any better living for the Lord. They are just being a bad example. Look, the older I live and the more I see, uh, it's becoming very clear to me um, what Ravenhill has said. He has visited many, many churches in America. He's a man that does a lot of revival. And he was asked the question, from your visiting in churches in America and the work you've done in America, what percentage of people in those churches you think you're saved? And I think he thought about 3 or 5%. That was shocking when I read that, to be very... And I'm becoming increasingly convinced that there are a lot of people who are professed to be Christians who are not Christians. Yeah. And, for example, there is no way a person who is a practicing homosexual a practicing lesbian, a practicing transgender, there's no way a person like that is saved and born again. Absolutely not. Okay, That is an abomination to God. It's disgusting. It is evil. It is corrupt. It is, it is, it is contrary to God's will. And that meant that those people have never repented. And you cannot be saved without repentance. So I'm settled on this matter. I don't know how people can be arguing that these people are saved. They've got, let them have their churches. They have liberty and freedom. That's their religious right. But don't endorse 
that lifestyle and saying that these people are born again. The Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit for a reason. He perfects holiness and sanctifies the believer. He transforms our lives. Right? And there's an interesting verse of Scripture which says, which says that faith is called the obedience of faith. Several times Paul used that in the book of Romans in relation to the Gentiles. He saved them to the obedience of faith. In other words, the kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that produces obedience. That's what Paul is teaching. And that is what true saving is, faith is. It's not a person just saying, Lord Jesus, come to my heart and save me. And no intention to obey him, to serve him, to live for him. Such a creature, believe you me, is as lost as the worst heathen in any part of the world. When a person is saved, you're coming to Christ, you're coming to him as Lord and Savior. You, you surrender your life to him to serve him. You turn away from your sin. If that is not your experience, you do not have genuine, authentic salvation. I don't care if you were baptized. I don't care if you were did communion. doesn't matter one bit. It is what the Bible teaches and not what the church teaches that's important when it comes to this matter. And a lot of people today are in that, that boat. And I can't understand how a lot of evangelical leaders, supposed to be prominent evangelical leaders, are hedging and uh, dilly-dallying on issues like that. They're afraid to come out and speak because the media would lambaste them and call them homophobic and call them haters, etc., etc. I have no such fear. To me, I've said this several times on this program, truth simplifies life. Hmm. Once you know truth, you don't have to argue with people. You just state the truth, right? And let the Holy Spirit do His work. I can't convince you that's not my job. My job is to share the glad tidings and to be a witness to you and let the Holy Spirit use the Word of God to convict you because all my convicting, if the Holy Spirit don't convict you, you're in, 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 in the boat where you can be saved. So my job is to be a witness and a testimony and let the Holy Spirit work it. But once He works in you, He will convict you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's His job. If He has not done that in your life, you are not born again. You are not saved. You are lost. L-O-S-D, lost. Here's a question about 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 19. Good evening, Pastor. Why did the Lord preach to the spirits in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 19? Can you please explain? Let me read 1 Peter 3 18 through 20 just to give a little bit of context. For Christ also hath suffered, hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Verse 19, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. And verse 20, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah <coughs> while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. I would like to deal with that text another time, but yeah. here's the, the gist of what it's teaching there. Uh, if you notice that, um, it's not saying necessarily that Christ went, but he did the preaching to the Spirit. In other words, that the Spirit was sent, not necessarily Christ. Read it again, you'll see that very clearly uh, there. Uh, verse 19. By which spirit? Yeah. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits right, in right, prison. By the Holy Spirit, right? And again, that that is generally perceived to be a declaration of those 
um, spirits in the days of Noah. Remember the days of Noah, you had the situation where um, the sons of God went in on the daughters of women and created these uh, Nephilims, these, these, these um, um, giants, etc., etc. And um, it seemed that these are a peculiar group of people that the message of Christ's victory of the cross needed to be declared to them that they are uh, condemned uh, because the Messiah now has come, etc., etc. It's a declaration of the, the victory of Christ and a declaration of their judgment that is coming. And this seemed to be a peculiar group. Jude also mentions this same group of, of spirit beings that uh, were disobedient in the time of their Noah. And that's where there is, seemed to be some kind of a uh, these demonic spirits intermarrying with these uh, women and creating this kind of a hybrid. And that's why I believe the flood came as well to destroy all of these, these, these different beings, etc., etc. That seems to be the proper interpretation. But let me deal with that more thoroughly uh, in the next, next program so I can go through verse to verse and give a better explanation. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. Do you have a question? Maybe it's come to your mind this evening. Maybe it's something you thought about for years and years. And you would like to know what the Bible says about a particular issue, topic, why the Bible doesn't discuss something, why there's a particular verse in the Bible, what it means. Give us a call. You can ask your question live on the air by calling one 268 462-7420. Again, the phone line is open and available for you. Call 268-462-7420 to ask it live on the air. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268-782-1454. And if you are joining us on Facebook, you can go to the comment section under the live video feed. Type right there in your device in the comment section and your comments, your questions, your concerns will get passed on to me and I will share them with Pastor Murphy live on the air. As we await your questions, we are going to continue pick up and continue the discussion that we were having last week. It's actually the topic of separation, which was started, might have been a couple of months ago, Pastor. But let's focus specifically on ecclesiastical (laughs) separation and doctrinal separation. Do you have any opening comments kind of to set the stage for that uh, this evening? Well, I think we were looking at separation in three different aspects. First of all, we looked at what we call moral separation. That has to do with believers separating from sin and the world. And we dealt with that fairly extensively. And then secondly, we dealt with the whole matter of personal separation. That is where we need to separate from individual believers. Uh, They don't walk uprightly. They will not walk in contrary to the word. The Apostle Paul said, withdraw yourself from these people, have nothing to do with these kind of people. To the times when believers are living in sinful lives. And Paul mentioned about five uh, who are living with fornication, extortion, um, belligerence, etc., etc. People of that kind of an attitude. Paul said, you separate from those type of people. You have nothing to do with those people, that they may be ashamed. The, the goal is not to deny the fact that there are believers at this point in time, but the whole goal is to not make them feel comfortable and make them feel um, uh, 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 uneasy with your presence. 
And so we talk about uh, separating from believers itself. And then the third thing has to do with what we call ecclesiastical separation. That is separating from churches, coming out of a church that is now teaching, went was teaching very well, going on quite well with the, the, the Word of God, but they have now departed from the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. When that happens, a believer doesn't stay in that situation. The believer now must learn to separate. The other thing is... <clears throat> When you belong to an organization where your organization is now associating with unbelievers, worshiping with unbelievers, praying with unbelievers, going into the temple of unbelievers, uh, uh, um, endorsing unbelievers, um, endorsing the, the founders of those religions, it is time to move out of those kind of churches. And that's what we're talking about, ecclesiastical separation. One of the great verses in the Bible that deals with this whole matter is Second Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 11, verse 7 to 7, verse 1. Could you read that, please? Second Corinthians 6, verse 11 says, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. That's Second Corinthians 6. Second Corinthians 6, 6 11. Yeah, go ahead. Uh-huh. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, but ye are also enlarged. And then we're starting a new topic, the temple of the living God. Second Corinthians 6 verse 14 says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty." Continue with chapter 7. Yeah, just 7 verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Yeah, it's very clear there that um, a believer should not be part of something that involves darkness, unrighteousness, infidelity, idolatry, uh, etc. Yet what we are currently witnessing today in uh, church organizations, especially the World Council of Churches, that they are actually bringing together not just Christians, they're bringing together Hindus, Muslims, Taoists, uh, Shintoists, um, uh, Mormons, um, you just name it, a complete conglomerate together, and including, by the way, the Aborigines and their, their form of worship. You've got the World Council of Churches um, bringing about this ecumenical, religious, um, googly-goo, to to use the term, uh, together. And how is that possible that you can have believers and unbelievers, pagans and people who practice idolatry, who don't believe in the God of the Bible, who serve other gods, and uh, who serve ancestors, uh, who serve uh, in different non-biblical forms of worship. How is it possible 
for uh, the church to remain and become part of that organization. Yet the World Council of Churches uh, have got, I think, over 400 different types of dom- Christian denominations as part of that whole group. And I'm going to do part of our program. Uh, some of the meetings that they had, these conventions they had, and what took place at them, I'm reading and I find it difficult to believe that these are people who are claiming to be Christians. And the leaders of the Anglican Church, for example, uh, the things that they're staying, saying about the death of Christ, the virgin birth, the resurrection, uh, and uh, other religions, that Jesus is not the way. How can you have a head of the church to not believe uh, in the resurrection of Christ, not believe in the virgin birth of Christ, not believe in the atonement of Christ, but yet he's the head of, of the church? People in those churches need to come out of those churches. Come out, the Bible says, separate from the ungodly, separate from darkness, separate from Belial, separate from idolatry. It's not a choice for us. This is what God demands that we separate from those kind of churches. Uh, another interesting uh, verse where, uh, is if you look at uh, First John, Second John nine and eleven. There's no, there's only just one chapter. Second John, John verses nine through eleven. Whosoever transgresseth, transgresseth, and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God speed. Verse 11 for he that biddeth him God speed is partaker of his evil deeds. Yeah, and that's very, very clear. Now, this is not just now separating for the church, but imagine a teacher who is actually denying the doctrine of Christ. The Bible is very, very clear if you deny the doctrine of Christ. You're not even to invite that person into your home. You're not even to say, Lord bless you when you leave. Uh, the Bible says, quite frankly, that this is contrary to God's will for the believer. Again, uh, those teachers are coming from churches. So if you're separate from the teacher and not allow the teacher, how then would you go into the church where the teacher is? I mean, there's such a, a bland contradiction of this. But this is what is happening across the globe. There is a complete apostasy of Christianity in all the major denominations. And uh, the people who are in these churches may not be aware of how far this apostasy has spread. And that there is a biblical teaching that you separate from those organizations. You come out of them. You say, but, you know, they were good. They were good. But now they've gone away from the faith. They've gone away from the truth. You no longer belong in that organization. You need to find a church where God's word is honored and where God's name is glorified and where God's people serve the Lord according to Scripture. But move out of those churches. uh, And don't let the heritage your grandmother, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, that's the church they went to. But yet, if those people have departed, and the head of those people, churches have departed, you need to come out of those churches and to serve the Lord. Yeah. We have a WhatsApp question that has come from Anguilla. Good evening, Pastor. The Apostle Paul seems to say that women should not be in the pulpit preaching. What do you say? P.S. I attend such a church. I would recommend that uh, Nathan uh, give you a reference. We did uh, we did a program on women preachers. Should women be preachers? Listen, if you take the Bible literally, 
and you follow the, the scriptural teaching, a woman should not be a preacher. Paul tells us in Timothy two reasons. He said uh, a woman must not exercise authority and power over a man. And, of course, that has to do with the home and the, and, and, and the church. In the case of Timothy, he's talking about within the church. And Paul gives two reasons. Number one, God made the man first. That was not an accident. The fact that God made the man first, Paul argues, is that that hierarchical arrangement indicated that the man was supposed to be the head. Secondly, he said because the woman was deceived. Uh, she was the one that was misled. And normally she was misled through conversation. Anyone that knows the great weakness of a woman, it is conversation. Uh, most, I can't say most, but men know how to hoodwink women. Women love t- to be talked to. They love uh, conversation. They easily pawns of people who listen to them and talk nicely to them because that's how they feel loved and cared for. And that is one of the great uh, weaknesses that they have as a woman. And Paul said because of this, she is excluded from being an authority and uh, having power over the man. And then in, in, in Timothy and in Titus again, in giving the qualifications of what a pastor should be, a pastor uh, should be a husband of one wife. So it's impossible for a woman to be a pastor. It's very, very clear that that role has been given to the man. And by the way, the leadership role has been given to the man in the church. The leadership has been given to the man in the home. Those are the two things that are under constant attack to try to bring about what is called equality uh, among male and female. Uh, that's not the biblical. There is a hierarchy within the Godhead. It's God the Father, God the Son, the God the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that they're um, inferior to each other, but they have distinct roles to play. And when it comes to the church, there's also a hierarchy. There is the pastor, the deacons, but there's no room for a woman performing the role of a pastor. So that is very, very clear in the Bible. And I don't know um, how men are surrendering that position. And I think it's because of the pressure of the social uh, modern arrangement uh, that is happening, especially with the feminist movement. They're putting tremendous pressure uh, on, 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 on Christian leaders who are not maintaining a stand on the Scripture. They're allowing the culture to change Scripture rather than the Scripture to change the culture. That's where we are today. And remember, a lot of these churches as well were started by women. For example, the Seventh-day Adventist movement. It's a woman that started that, basically, Ellen G. White. Take her out of that, you don't have the Seventh-day Adventist movement. So that's why they could ordain uh, uh, women pastors as well. Okay, And, of course, it's unfortunate that the, the Anglican Church... Um, and uh, the Methodist Church as well, has now surrendered under the pressure to um, put women on the same power of men in respect to the ministry of the church. They've completely ignored the biblical order that is set down in the Bible and the strictures that the Bible gave in respect to the genders. And uh, they are now also ordaining women, etc., etc. The, the only holdout right now seem to be independent Baptists. Even the large Baptist denominations seem to be surrendering to this cultural pressure uh, to bring, uh, create what are called an egalitarian society where everybody is equal and women have all the rights that a man has and there's no distinction between male and female. And there are people who are now exploiting and abusing the interpretation of the scripture to try to support that. 
right? Uh, for example, one of the things that the user said is neither male nor female. That is, I think it's quoted in Galatians. But of course, if you read the text contract, it has to do with when it comes to salvation, God deals, deals with male and female on the same basis <coughs> of equality. <coughs> it has nothing to do with church service. Let me finish out this episode of That's Truth by sharing with you how you can hear a whole episode on the topic of women in church leadership. You can go to Google, type in That's Truth Podcast, choose your preferred provider, and then when you click on that, look for episode number six. Episode 6, and it's entitled Roles of Men and Women in Church Leadership. Be sure you join us next week as we will continue this topic, Lord willing, of ecclesiastical separation. (coughs) Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.